You are listening to Haftarah, the Shir series where we explore the connections between the Parsha Shavua and its corresponding Haftarah. And here at the database with Rabbi Yeshua Eisenberg, this week's Parsha happens to be the rare double Parsha of Chukas and Balak, a double Parsha that only occurs in Chutzlaharts, in other words, outside Eretz Yisrael, and only under the circumstances when the Yom Tov Sheni of Shavuos, the second day of Yom Tov of Shavuos, which also can only take place in Chutzlaharts, when that falls out on a Shabbos, the Bnei Eretz Yisrael are already experiencing Isruchag, they're already reading the very next week's Parsha HaShavua, and in Chutzlaharts, meanwhile, we're reading another Kriya that pertains to Shavuos, and that sets us another Parsha behind Eretz Yisrael, and the trick to catch us up is to read Chukas and Balak together, as in Eretz Yisrael they learned Parshas Chukas last week, this week they are only learning Parshas Balak, Whereas for us here in Chutzlar, it's to catch up, we read Chukas and Balak together, making it so that one thing at least that Eretz Yisrael and Chutzlar share in common this week is the reading of Parshas Balak. But another thing they have in common is the Haftarah, which is also going to be from Parshas Balak. But what that means for us here at Haftarah is that we're going to have at least two Haftarah Shirim this week, one which will focus on the Haftarah for Parshas Chukas, the other which will focus on the Haftarah for Parshas Balak. And as we are going in order, we're going to begin with the Haftarah for Parshas Chukas, which comes to us from Sefer Shoftim, Parak Yid Aleph, 11 in Shoftim, Psukim Aleph through Lamed Gimel, 1 to 33. And this is not the first time that we are opening up Shoftim for a Haftarah. The last time that we looked at Shoftim was for the Haftarah of our Parshas Naso, the story of Shimshon, at least the backstory of Shimshon. We also saw Shoftim for the Haftarah for Parshas Bishalach, the story and the song of Devorah. And we are going to look at Shoftim once again, where we will see the very interesting story of Yiftach Hagiladi, one of the Shoftim, um, another one of the Shoftim, I should say. And we will see what his relevance is to any of the stories in our Parshios. Um, it's a very interesting discussion, as we will see. And then, Bezras Hashem, we will um, have the opportunity to look at the Haftarah for Parshas Balak in the very next shir. Um, but before we discuss any of that, let's first dedicate this shir. And let's take a look at both our Parsha and its Haftarah. Now, with another multifaceted sidra in Parsha Chukas, and of course, room for only one Haftara, we might have to once again acknowledge the challenge of our Mesora to decide exactly which themes and lessons in the Parsha must be highlighted in this limited Haftara slot. And Chukas deals with many unique topics, such as the Para Aduma, Moshe Rabbeinu's hitting of the rock in May Mariva, the story of the fiery serpent storm and Moshe Rabbeinu's copper serpent on the pole, just to name a few of the stories. Para Aduma gets enough attention during the week of Parshas Para, and even has its own Haftarah, as we discussed, from Yechazkel. But perhaps a Haftarah that highlights the tragedy of May Mariva would be appropriate. Suppose we read about how Hashem forbade David HaMelech from doing the one thing he desired most, building the base HaMikdash, and yet Hashem said that David HaMelech would not be able to do that. That might serve as a great parallel to Moshe Rabbeinu, whom Hashem forbade from fulfilling his one dream of entering Eretz Yisrael. Or perhaps maybe we could revisit the story of the serpent on the pole by reading about how Chizkiah HaMelech later destroyed that very same serpent, um, that statue, as it was served as a false deity, as an Evodazara, in Malachim Beis. But what has our tradition gone with? We read the story of Yiftach HaGiladi, how Yiftach becomes the Shofet and the leader 
of his family and defeats the Bnei Ammon in war. So how does the story of Yiftach connect to anything in Parshas Chukas? Now the truth is, its connection is quite precise. But you have to know Parshas Chukas really well to see it. That's because the Haftar references a small, very unassuming passage in Chukas, whose significance in the Sidra at large seems quite minor, and certainly not to present any overarching themes. Rashi in our Sidra apparently spells out the connection between our Sidra and the account of Yiftach, as Yiftach recalls how, as implied in our Parsha, the Bnei Moav did not allow the Bnei Israel to cross through their land. Take a look at Rashi, Sefer Bamidbar, Parak Chafal of Pasuk Yud Gimel, and there Rashi draws that connection. He cites Psukim from the story of Yiftach. Now, the, the art scroll Stone Chumash draws this connection out a little bit further, describing the historical and diplomatic discussion revolving around the land of Moab. Uh, land of Moab. Now, where Parsha, despite the fact that no nation would give the Bnei Israel permission to even pass through their lands, Hashem came to the Bnei Israel's aid so that when Sichon decided to attack the Bnei Israel, the Bnei Israel merely defending themselves overtook Sichon and the Bnei Amori, as well as the lands which their opponents had conquered from Moab. And our Haftarah picks up in the times of the Shoftim when the Bnei Amon, of course, Moab's brother nation, the cousins of Moab, when they approached the Bnei Israel of Gilad and threatened them with war, accusing the Bnei Israel of having stolen its land years ago, as if it had usurped the land from the hands of Moab itself. Now, Yiftach stands up and defends the Bnei Israel with a fiery but matter-of-fact response, tearing apart Amon's false accusation, his false narrative, and educating them about the simple, true, factual history of Israel's diplomatic right to the Moabi land, as it is presented in our very own Parshish Lukas. Not only did the Bnei Israel not take anything from Ammon or Moab, but neither of the nations showed even the slightest hospitality to the vulnerable Bnei Israel when they were traveling through the desert. And it was, in fact, the nation of Amori that knocked off Moab and took their land. And it was only when Amori forced itself upon Israel, the Bnei Israel, that Israel fought back and by Hashem's grace won the land from them. And ultimately, Yiftach's brilliant citation of history of Israel for dummies did not avail either the Bnei Israel or the dummies of Ammon, as Ammon decided to go through with the war anyway. And in the end, though, Ammon had neither the moral and political high grounds nor the military high ground, as Hashem granted Yiftach and the Bnei Israel the victory that day. Of course, it was a great day for the Bnei Israel. Now, as a Haftarah, there are a couple of important questions that we have to address. Before we get to those questions, we should definitely acknowledge again the fact that the connection between the Sidra and this Haftarah is a direct one, and this reading is therefore by no means a stretch of a choice for a Haftarah. Again, it's, it's a very direct stretch. In fact, it's quite rare to see a Haftarah that references such specific points taken right out of the Parsha itself. So the Masora has done a very fair job. However, as was mentioned, the reference to Chukas in the Haftarah hardly seems like what we would refer to as a main topic or a main reflection of the Sidra at large. Right, that's not to say that there aren't important lessons to be learned from this Haftarah's reference to Chukas, 
it's important to learn history and for the Bnei Israel, for Ben Israel, to know what Israel's rights are, as it were. It's also important to know that people will often misquote history and take advantage of the ignorant over diplomatic issues and politics. We might add that it's important for Kalah Israel to remember that no matter what its opponents think or do, that Hashem will always fight for Israel. Despite all of that, Chukas deals with so much more. If anything, Chukas is remembered more for the things like Paraduma and the tragedy of Meimariva, which we mentioned earlier. Right, this is one reference point, you know, one, one bullet point in all of Parshas Chukas, and it's a quite forgotten one. Maybe we could argue that because it's uh, less paid attention to a point, maybe that's why we are analyzing it for the Haftarah, maybe. But maybe we have a fair question. And once again, that is why we are spending time focusing on a side topic, if we can call it that, in Parshish Lukas. Or is it possible that the story of Yiftach HaGeladi encompasses some of the larger themes as well? Perhaps another question on the story of Yiftach as a Haftar for Chukas is that the Haftar doesn't merely cover the diplomatic discussion and the battle with Amon, but it actually goes through Yiftach's backstory as well. We hear about how he was a lowly son of a harlot, Azona, rejected by his paternal half-brothers of Gilad, and was forced away from the family. And it was only when the people of Gilad realized that they were desperate for Yiftach's help that they begged him to come back and to serve as the mighty leader that only he was naturally capable of being. Now, we might say that as long as the Haftar was already going to discuss Yiftach's battle with Ammon over the land of Moab, it just made sense to include Yiftach's backstory. However, at first glance, there's really no reason to include such peripheral points to that of the target discussion in the Haftarah. And really, the Navi should record the entire story, but the Haftarah should just be an excerpt. And as was mentioned, the extra text of the Haftarah is introductory, and it's only background information. In other words, it could easily be shaved off for the purposes of the Haftarah, and why not? The Haftarah doesn't need to be longer just because... So what does the backstory have to do with this larger Haftarah? And I think that our two questions can possibly answer each other. We first wondered why our Haftarah of choice only seemed to cover a small portion of Chukas, as opposed to referencing the main topics, like Moshe's mistake at Meimariva. Now our question was why the Haftarah seems to contain extra text. But perhaps this Haftarah is not just about Israel's rights to the Moavi land, and perhaps the rest of Yiftach's story contains other integral connections to Chukas. Indeed, Yiftach's life might serve as a parallel of sorts for the difficult beginning and the challenges of Moshe Rabbeinu. Think about it. Both of these heroes, these great defenders of Israel, had difficulty being accepted by their brethren, and both were ultimately summoned to be Hashem's messengers and saviors for the Bnei Israel. Yet neither of them asked for the jobs that they were assigned up for, but they were faithfully and loyally committed to those jobs and their Avodah Hashem at large. And yet there is one more heartbreaking parallel between them. Both Moshe and Yiftach made tragic mistakes, which brought each of their dreams to a standstill. We've referenced Moshe Rabbeinu's mistake, but what exactly did Yiftach do wrong? As the Navi records and as Chazal highlight, Yiftach, against his better judgment, infamously made a pledge that should Hashem give him and the Bnei Israel the victory over Ammon, the first thing that would emerge from his barn would be consecrated to Hashem as a carbon. 
And although making pledges to Hashem at a time of war is a normal practice, as is seen in our very own Parshas Chukas, when the Bnei Israel went to war with the Amalekim after Aaron's death, the nature of Yiftach's pledge was unorthodox, quite risky, and according to Chazal was inappropriate. And as the story goes, the risk came to fruition when Yiftach returned from the victory and out of the barn emerged none other than his daughter to congratulate him. Without getting into the technical ramifications of Yiftach's pledge and what exactly should have been done about his daughter in that situation, which is a discussion that the Mepharshim deal very much with beyond the scope of our discussion here. But ultimately, the Navi tells us that Yiftach's daughter subjected herself to a life of solitude, never to marry, but to remain consecrated to Hashem alone. Now, although it was a great day for the Bnei Israel, it was a rough time for Yiftach's family. And if you think about it, perhaps this dichotomy between the Bnei Israel and Yiftach can be compared to the same dichotomy between the Bnei Israel and Moshe in our Parsha. The Bnei Israel got what they desperately needed. They needed water for their families and for their livestock. For Kalah Israel, it was a time of relief. Everyone could return to their camps and rest assured except for their leader and human provider, Moshe Rabbeinu, who would have to live with this dark cloud hovering over him for the rest of his life, knowing that he will never get a chance to enter Eretz Yisrael. Many might think that the challenge of Parshat Sukkot is to understand what was so bad about Moshe hitting a rock, rather than speaking to it, that Hashem had to take the one thing Moshe wanted away from him. But really, the challenge is way more sophisticated than that. From the standpoint of justice, Strict justice. For whatever reason, Moshe didn't do the right thing in his circumstance. At the very least, he violated Hashem's word. To be held accountable for one's slip-up and to suffer the consequences, we would say, is fair. That's called a statute, that's called a decree, that is strict justice. And perhaps the very same can be said for Yiftach. It was wrong for him to make a pledge, even for a good reason, under such rickety stipulations. That Yiftach or anyone could suffer the consequences is just a part of life sometimes. It's just natural. Even if we could argue that the consequences are unnecessarily heavy, it does not take away from the fact that the individual did the wrong thing. Had they not made their mistakes, the consequences would not have happened. Plain and simple. Unfortunately, though, Moshe violated Hashem's command, and Yiftach set himself up for an accident waiting to happen, and that these individuals these great individuals, these heroes, that they should suffer for their mistakes is at the very least understandable. The challenge of Chukas is perhaps how the most righteous of individuals who live to serve God and his people could be dealt with so harshly despite their services. And we're not talking about people seeking glory and grandeur, people who are cutting corners. We're talking about some of the greatest people who ever lived. And as Chazal tell us, Moshe Bedoro, whether it's Moshe in his generation or future Shoftim, Yiftach Bedoro, Yiftach in his generation. These are the people that deserve, and it is reserved for them, the utmost respect of all of Klaistral. Klaistral relies on the leaders of their generations, be it Moshe, be it Yiftach. And if we're talking about Moshe, who originally wanted nothing to do with leadership and only took the job because Hashem had forced him into it, or Yiftach, who despite being shamed by his brethren, came back to save them, Yes, each one made mistakes, but couldn't Hashem at least have given his heroes a break, just cut them some slack? There is a measure called Rachamim. If anyone deserved it, wouldn't it have been his leaders? 
Yeah, we know Hashem judges his greatest leaders, Kechutasara, like the strand of a hair. But still, Moshe has been Hashem's right-hand man for the past 40-plus years, and he just could not be permitted to step a single foot into the Promised Land, the one thing he wanted. Yiftach had to get tripped up by a mere technicality in his words. Hashem couldn't just make an animal walk out of the barn instead of his daughter, or at least that his animal should walk out first. Like Hashem could have arranged things so that Yiftach would not have to have been in that circumstance. Yes, Yiftach put himself into the circumstance, but Hashem could have given him some divine protection. After everything that Yiftach had been through, did he not deserve to see his daughter get married and have a family? We would think that Hashem's most loyal subjects, the great defenders of Israel, would be entitled to some kind of slack. And I think that is the greater challenge of Chukas. And if one thinks about it, this challenge can be seen from Chukas's opening topic of Para Aduma, the well-known paradox, or the paradox, if you will, of the laws of Para Aduma, is how the Kohen who engages in the service to purify the impure individual, he himself becomes ritually impure, that the, the ashes, the mechatas, anyone who comes into contact with them, they become ritually impure, as opposed to the one who's sprinkled with it. Right, despite the, the Kohen's sacrifice on behalf of the other individual, yes, if one makes contact with dirt, he will naturally get dirty, but it still bothers us, and it should. So the natural mind, it might sort of make sense, but it's still not what we would call fair, at least to our normal human understanding, Right, there are different levels of fair. There's strict justice, which is fair. And then there's, come on, you, you, you have the reins. You, you, know, you, can, you can control things. You can, with your, with your own judgment, choose to be more lenient. And it, w- it would not be to, to, to compromise anyone else's safety. You know, with, with that at your disposal, why not be a little bit more merciful to the people who deserve it most? Right? In a certain sense, we say that that's not fair. And as far as we're concerned, it did not have to be that way. Hashem declared that it be that way. And at the end of the day, until the next world, we will not completely understand why life has to be with, that has to be this way. This is the nature of a chok, a decree which we do not understand. And all we can do is make like motion Yiftach by living out the rest of our lives as righteous and unwavering of the Hashem. And what emerges from all of the above is an amazing multifaceted Haftarah to match our amazing multifaceted Sidra. But beyond that, we have to keep the crucial lessons in mind. Firstly, the importance of history, yes, and the rights of Hashem's chosen people to its chosen land. But perhaps even more fundamentally, the lessons of humbly accepting Hashem's decrees. Because it is by Hashem's decrees that we have our Yisrael, and it is by Hashem's also mysterious decrees that there are a lot of things that we don't like necessarily. They are ultimately a mystery. But a true Avad Hashem will stick it out and remain loyal to those decrees until the end of his days, as did Moshe, Bedoro, as did Yiftach, Bedoro, two great defenders of Israel. Shal Bizocha, to be true of the Hashem, receive as much of Hashem's grace as possible, but also have the ability to stick it out when the going gets tough and life seems like it's unfair and we are obeying steadfastly Hashem's decrees and Hashem should reveal to us the ultimate good of his every single decree with the Geula and the coming of Mashiach from Harib Yamenu. As always, if you enjoyed this year and others like it on the podcast and you want to partner up with us with a sponsorship, or if you have questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, or you want to join the database podcast WhatsApp group where you'll find links to every uploaded Shear or links to Shearim that I repost due to their relevance, then all you have to do is reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's the data then base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com. Until next time, 
Have a wonderful rest of your week. Stay tuned for Half Torah for Parshas Balak. And thank you for joining us here at the database.